Welcome to Pray for Micah. And now your host, Micah Chrisman. Welcome to the Pray for Micah podcast. Today's prayers are sponsored by the Boys and Girls Choir of the Morbin Tabernacle of the Singing Gazelles. This is not a real group and neither are these sponsorships, but if it happens to exist, just know that it was not the copyright infringement is not intentional, but the prayers are still welcome. <laughs> Today we're welcoming Nathaniel Bozarth onto the show. Uh, he is a film producer, public speaker, and a data scientist. He's working to move racial equity to the center of culture. Daniel, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Mike? Thanks for having me. Good, man. Really glad to have you here. This is just, we were just talking about how I'm still drying my hair. I'm still trying to, you know, let the makeup sit from uh, my morning. <laughs> I'm not, you know, it's funny because we I started doing this with my friend Josh Casey, and he has to do it really late at night. So when his wife and kids are going to sleep, we're doing it like his time, it's like 11 o'clock his time. It's like 10 o'clock oh, my time. And so, yeah, our like episodes were like kind of just, you know, red eyed. And so you look well this morning. You look like you're ready for <laughs> the morning hangs. Well, thanks. Yeah, I, 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 I actually record. So it's not even that late. I do podcast recording sometimes at 8 p.m. And I notice that I feel like my brain starts to already slow down at that point. I'm not as sharp, but you got me at my sharpest. Yes. I feel good right now. <laughs> and, you know, I'm always wanting people when they're sharpest because otherwise when they're dull, they're dull, you know. <laughs> so how the hell you been, man? We haven't uh, like hung out, talked a while. I mean, it's been a pandemic and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty good, man. Uh, I, my, my wife's immune compromised. So I do find myself like largely at home still. So I am fully at this point used to the quarantine life used to zoom uh i'm i'm very glad i feel really good about my marriage that uh my wife and i are have been in the same house for so long and had no people we actually moved uh and we've had no one else in our house which is really sad we miss like having parties and having people over um but it feels good that our relationship feels healthy and we're not sick of each other. It's like, wow, that's, that's great. I'm glad. Wow. That's wonderful. So where'd you all move? You're not in the Ivanhoe neighborhood anymore. Oh no, we moved to Ivanhoe. Yeah. We were in, we were in Hyde park, moved to Ivanhoe. Um, yeah. And it's great. Yeah. Doing any gardening over there? <laughs> I guess there's, well, Ivanhoe. man, we should, it's, uh, it's funny. Like there, yeah, there are so it's a, it's so beautiful how many community gardens there are around us um even even community gardens notwithstanding we we tried to do a potted garden in our backyard which went okay uh we we, we're having a lot a lot of like late season tomatoes which we're not sure if they're going to ripen or not we're new learning a lot i think i think i fertilized them at the wrong time or something yeah i um have my own little home mini garden in the backyard and i swear i just grow things so that nature can eat it that's what i've disturbed <laughs> you know i had some good uh chard for a minute that i was able oh, to nice. harvest but then you know the next time i go out all the locusts had like been chewing holes or whatever and they were pretty much devoured before i got those same thing with what, my what do you what do you eat chard with i'll just do it i'll just saute it yeah i just kind of nice. 
whatever. I make it like a bed of veggies for, you know, usually whatever meat I'm deciding to eat that, you know, chicken. Nice. Beef, but yeah, I don't know. I, I've never really learned great recipes for chard. I just, uh-huh. I always just do some olive oil, salt, and pepper. And nice. Sometimes I've grilled it. That's really fun. Just oh, cool. I mean, I do the same thing: salt, pepper, olive oil, and then I just throw it on my grill while my other meats are cooking. Nice, <laughs> so good greens. I pretend to be healthy by growing things in my backyard. But then, like I said, uh, then I go out to get my tomatoes, and I realize, oh, this one's already half eaten by whatever bugs are out here. Man, when you get a good tomato, though, I swear there is there is something truly magical about getting a tomato off the vine nothing's touched it you know except nature itself uh it's still like warm from the sun oh my gosh i love that it's like that's bliss that's my bliss and then i made the mistake of not getting a uh oh a tomato cage for them Mm. early on in the (laughs) yeah so they were like laying down and i was using twine to try to hang them back up. Lost probably half my tomatoes just trying to finagle. Oh, no. You know, I had like 10 green tomatoes that I told myself, well, I'll just make fried green tomatoes because I have so many green tomatoes. And then just never made it. And then, the- mm. <laughs> but I do take my compost to Cherith Brook. So I just, nice. so at some point I'm like, eh, it all goes back to the earth. So if I can just take it back to the compost, they'll use it in their garden. I don't feel so bad for ruining half the fruit I grow. <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah, that's huge. Yeah, I feel really bad. I, I, I'd really like to get into composting. Uh, I, I have this like part of me that is consciously, like j- there's like, just enough consciousness that I feel really bad every time I throw like food waste, like a banana peel or, or something down the trash and realizing that's going to be sequestered forever in a landfill, uh, but not enough that we've actually started composting. So I need to start actually composting. I'll tell you what, it's a stinky business. Like, you know, I, you have to make sure you're on top of, yeah, taking it somewhere. You know, like I said, if I started my own compost, I would be just turning it and, you know, in the backyard and, and, but I guess it's really warm in the winter. So fun fact for, for those survivalists, for the people who listen to the show who are preppers, I mean, the, the one or two that are, if you're in the middle of a winter and you're freezing to death, you can find it. If you find a compost pile, you need to just crawl right to the center of it because all that nitrogen cooking, well, maybe not in the center of it, but you know, kind of do yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just do the Star Wars thing where you just like wrap yourself, you know, like yeah, from uh, Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, uh-uh, just wrap yourself in the compost, and you'll keep warm all night, and it'll, you'll stay safe. Nice, like steamy compost. Hey, but I'm so glad you and your wife have just been able to ride out this pandemic, doing well together. Yeah, yeah. What? I so wanted to kind of get into like some of the projects and things you've been working on. I follow you on Instagram, get your little vignettes, your kind of little daily reminders of doing self-work, dismantling yeah. white supremacy. And um, yeah, I just wanted to ask you just kind of what, what, uh, what inspired you to start doing that work? Just like even like the, the small pieces that you're putting out there, the kind of bit low content bits that I've really appreciated. Yeah. Thanks, man. Um, I think, for me, so much of my work has been uh, a, a product of kind of self-discovery 
and uh, feeling a sense of of awe or dis or sometimes anger, um, sometimes deep sadness about the things that I learned incorrectly, and then just having a drive to take others along in that process. I think I've always been a really reflective person and always a really open person. Um, I, I think that that's sort of one of my superpowers um, is that I'm like, I have very little, I guess I have uh, maybe a naive uh, lack of fear um, to, to, to just expose myself in that way. So as I learn and grow, I really want to take people along in that process. And I think at some point in, in 2020, I was talking with a friend of mine, John Bakura, and uh, he, I don't know what, how it came up in our conversation, but there was some idea that like, you know, what if, what, what if people were just reminded um, and, and took a, a few, I, well, okay. I, I think the, what, what I saw in white people in, in 2020, and I know that many other people observed this as well, it's like there was this big upsurge of white people who were interested in uh, racial justice, who were, um, you know, protesting um, uh, in, in the wake of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Amon Arbery being uh, brutalized, being murdered by police. Um, and there was this renewed interest. And I've heard therapists say that some of that renewed uh, or that new interest in things of justice was perhaps predicated on the collective trauma that we were experiencing at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, and there was an almost equalizing factor. Um, but then later, many white people lost interest. Um, the, it, it seemed like things went back to normal. We certainly didn't it doesn't seem to me like we've had huge strides forward since then. So I think that part of the, my hope by, by posting little snippets of, of self-reflection and, uh, or thoughts about racial justice is meant to remind people, hey, this is still happening. Like yeah. racism is still something we need to fight every day. We can't just stop because I think that that's what we saw. So, or are seeing. So, I, I think it's in a way trying to continue a momentum. Absolutely. Yeah. I think when we think about the protests and how many people showed up, even here in Kansas City on the plaza, and then, you know, some folks were just, you know, we know are going to just come to get their selfie and we won't see them again <laughs> until there's another protest. And yet, um, <clears throat> I don't know, to me, there were some people who were taking the stance of no one doing serious, you know, anti-racism work is showing up to protest. And to me, I just thought, hey, these people mm. showed up, like whether it was, you know, uh, a moment of just vainglory or maybe misconstrued like purpose. At the end of the day, I think People have to start somewhere on their journey to coming into realizing that this is something wrong and broken in our society, and at least I'm going to show up for it. Mm. But then what goes on beyond the moment and moves into the movement is the critical work, as we would know. But I guess yeah. I'm curious, like, what does that look like? What do, you, what do your videos speak to that is moving folks from that just moving beyond a moment of like 2020 and that collective consciousness awareness now of maybe that there's something wrong broken our society white supremacist murders 
and moving them into this movement work? Where, where does that direction you think should be heading towards? I think for, for white people, uh, it, it's that it has to be deeply personal and it has to be self-work. Uh, I, I was having a recent conversation with uh, Dr. Karma, Dr. Carmeletta Williams of the Black Archives. And, and in our conversation, we were talking about how, uh, especially for white folks in power, the, the drive to build and maintain white supremacy is fundamentally connected to the ego and connected to a, a, a really a, a lack of a sense of self for white people that is divorced from whiteness that there is a clinging to whiteness that white people have as their whole sense of self. So that if there doesn't exist a lower uh, class of people, a different race, then you, uh, then your sense of self is threatened. And this is something else that, that like uh, a really formative moment for me in high school was reading Chinua Achebe's um, critique of heart of darkness, where he levies that, that like, look, the European project has been a project of, um, feeling okay about themselves by uh, uh, deriding Africa as less than and primitive, etc. So I think this is something that's deeply embedded in the white psyche. I think that white people have to do self-work to move past that, to become, as some authors have said, to become less white, uh, but certainly to have a sense of self that is... Uh, more whole and, and grounded in a reality and not a fiction. Yeah, I think this is something that, you know, I've, I'm part of the open tables, like anti-racism cohort. We've been working on this kind of follow-up curriculum around internalized racial superiority. That year-long process of just working with this subgroup to flesh out what that train would look like was a real I feel like wrestling <laughs> mm. I'm for even us like even for me you know just thinking about you know <clears throat> well there's both like internalized racial superiority and internalized racial inferiority and so I think that's where the folks of color in our cohort have really you know tried to understand even their own how they show up into the presence of white folks and you know how does that inferiority take a place come to the forefront and make them feel like they, they have to follow that, like you're saying, that kind of pre-written script of, mm -hmm. I must be quiet, the white man has started, you know, speaking at the meeting, you know, mm -hmm. just the subconscious ways we're socialized into these conditioned mindsets. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> or what it means for me as a white person to show up and realize my tendencies to take up space and not, you know, think about what how my presence is impacting the like the work that's happening right now yeah and yet at the same time i you know i don't know about you but you i was listening to one of your clips you were talking about um going to church with calvin arsenia mm -hmm. younger and um i think part of my new part of my journey on where i'm wrestling with this work of anti-racism work is trying to disentangle myself from the shame culture that we grew up yeah. with in the church. Yes. Uh, this idea that I am this worm, I'm no one, you know, God's here to just, you know, almost like some sadist, you know, you know self-flagellation kind of thing. Like, and I've never taken like this work and anti-racism work as that extreme, but there are moments where you, you realize that, that there does take some resiliency to do that self-work you're talking about and to do it in a way that, 
mm-hmm. at the end of the day is supposed to kind of really move you beyond shame. <laughs> no one wants totally. To, no one wants my goodness to show up and feel sorry for himself. <laughs> you know, that doesn't right. solve anybody's problems. But anyways, I'm curious to hear more of your thoughts about that. Like how do white folks do this yeah. self-work? And then if they have that Christian kind of trauma or just religious trauma could not, might not be Christian it might be other shame culture religions you know sure yeah well one I think that something that comes to mind is that that shame uh shame isn't sustainable that shame um I mean both both in in the church uh even like when I uh so so I'll just claim where I am so I grew up in a very like charismatic evangelical Christian environment um uh if I put a label on myself now, I, I would use the label exvangelical um, buzzword. <laughs> um, I, I certainly am, uh, do consider myself to continue to be spiritual, but certainly not in the same way. And certainly in a, uh, yeah, d- I, very different than what I grew up with. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't lightly take the word I, I couldn't claim the word or, or would want to claim the word Christian at this point. Um, so it, it, in the church uh, growing up, I do feel like shame was a big part of my experience. Uh, and I think both then and now shame doesn't work as a sustainable uh, motivator or driver. So if, uh, if people are trying to do the work of anti-racism and do the, the inner work of racial justice, as Rhonda V. McGee calls it, if, if the motivation is shame, it's going to be temporary and not lasting. So it, it can't be that. And I think where I've struggled that with that is that like when I've gotten a, um, when I've got, when I've had a chance to have a pulpit, when I've been on stage, I find myself wanting to make white people feel guilt and shame. I find myself thinking, uh, uh kind of automatically that like, if I mean, without thinking subconsciously, that seems to be the direction that I have gone to try to make people feel bad. And I've realized more recently, um, starting with that conversation I had a little while back with Calvin Arsenia, um, that, that perhaps that's, that's been horribly misguided. And I, and I hadn't connected it to my experience of the church growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I now see them as like, uh, as just totally intertwined and it's part of the work I have to do now to disentangle those things and, and think about uh, doing my inner work, inviting other to uh, other white people to do the inner work uh, in a way that is um, about freedom, um, about wholeness, about becoming a, a more whole person. And I think there's, there's, there's a interesting complexity there because as a white person doing the the work of racial justice is about making a better world for our brothers and sisters of color um, and it's also about becoming more free myself um, because when when we're all more fr- wait what's the phrase i'm not free until everyone's free there, right. there's there's i can't remember that phrase but something like that I'm the worst when it comes to, I'll quote people and this quote, this, but I know the intention of the quote, you know, I think, um, yeah, you hit something on on the head for me thinking about when I first was kind of, I don't know, awakened to this work was when Mike Brown was killed and and I was in college at the time. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I was, 
in grad school. So I was teaching public speaking um, to the students. And I remember one of my students giving me his deployment papers because he was in the National Guard. And he was telling me how he was going to have to go to the armory at three in the morning and that he wouldn't be back for three days. And when he came back, um, him and some other students, you know, he had been in the National Guard. I mean, we're talking about he's 19 years old at the mm-hmm. time, something pretty young. There was other students who who uh, were who lived there who just went home <laughs> during that time. I think this was during um, when Officer oh what's his face was not acquitted or was acquitted was not mm. indicted and there was the uprising and the more protests happening anyways he came back and he shares with me how he was on the front line this is the national guard student and how um he was telling me how he almost drew his gun on somebody because you know he's on the shield wall and someone reached behind their back and they chucked a water bottle at him Mm -hmm. and just that moment he you know he's sharing about this moment of the split second of not drawing his gun and killing somebody i realized oh my god this like this is like a microcosm of the whole thing right of like this Mm -hmm. this this specific situation the idea that we see a threat where there may not be one and we're literally, as a culture, pitting these youth against each other, police against other teenagers or other people who are protesting. And I don't know, that was just my first time kind of coming to recognize that. And so starting that journey of wanting to learn more about Black Lives Matter and how that was forming from even like a communication standpoint, because that's what I was studying, it was really easy <laughs> to start wielding that knowledge against family, against friends. And man, you need to like, you know, get off, you know, whatever it is you're on and start real, open your eyes to what's going on. And, and like you said, I don't think I realized how much that was harming the movement work of just trying to jump in and be this kind of know-it-all and not, you know, that was speaking mm. from my perspective. And it wasn't even, it was, you know, good intentions of like wanting to raise awareness about this issue and realizing how blind I had been to it and complicit mm-hmm. in this system and realizing for the first time, like, oh, I need to talk about this. Mm-hmm. And yet didn't have like a lot of the tools to talk about it. So, but yeah, you have thoughts on that before? Sure. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 it's a, it's so complex because I think something, a phrase that comes to mind is that we need everyone in this movement, right? Like we need all types of people. Um, and we need, uh, all types of efforts in order to to make change. So we were talking about protest earlier, like we do need people out protesting and we need people behind the scenes doing things. Um, I don't know if we need black boxes on Instagram, uh, but we need all these other efforts. And, and And maybe there's a space that we need people like Jane Elliott who who definitely uses the shame approach with white people in, in her speeches. She's the uh, f- famed um, educator who did the brown eyes, blue eyes experiments in Aurora, Iowa uh, school to, to model to white kids uh, what discrimination feels like. Um, she definitely goes that shame approach, but we also uh, need other people. So it could be that there's a little bit of uh, a both. And um, I, I, I think what I've noticed in myself is that where where there was a time when if someone talked, it still is kind of true. It's just, it's complex. If someone talks about empathy, 
if if I if I'm talking to one on one with a white person and they say and I say something about I want white people to understand the historic uh, evils as they uh, as they affect the present so that we can create better policy um, so that we can have a more equitable and just present. And then they start going on about empathy and how our society is so polarized. It's a red flag for me because I'm like, hold on, like this sounds like you're trying to both sides this argument. This sounds like you're trying to acquit yourself. I think there's a probably a different way to do empathy. And that empathy it is a sort of empathy that that cares for the whole person, um, uh, for all people more more wholly, perhaps like. Um, there, there are people that talk about how uh, us white people, we have trauma with regards to the narrative of racial hierarchy. And that's some of the self-work is to heal our trauma, even though our trauma in no way can be of the same character, or I would say like as bad as the trauma that has befallen, um, that, that we have committed against uh, black people and other people of color. Um, I lost my train of thought. Uh, that was really anticlimactic. <laughs> I can't. I know. I I I kind of resonate with what you're saying. Thinking about how do we restore our humanity as white people? Because we don't even realize that that part of us that has been lost of generational just yeah the superiority. This idea that you know. I mean, you can almost say the same thing just even as us as white men, like there's a whole, you know, we could explore that dynamic right now. We're kind of talking about race, but even as, yeah. you know, being healed from toxic masculinity yeah. that, that, hey, there's this, again, pre-written script of how, what it means to be a man yeah. and how demoralizing that really is to our human psyche. <laughs> you know, we don't. I, I have a really good example, like a really concrete example of of thinking about the intersectionality of being white and male and with regards to race. So I have this history of, of like you said, being a public speaker, being a, a film producer and podcast producer in this space of racial justice with, with emphasis on the history of segregation and, and real estate. So there was a company uh, that wanted to move their business um, onto Truce Avenue from, uh, from a previous location. Um, and they asked me for my like advice on how to do it well. And I, I gave an answer. Uh, I, it was via email. I gave some, some thoughts. I, I, I provided a few other people that they might reach out to. Um, but it didn't go very well for them. Uh, there was, it, it, the, there was a lot of backlash. In fact, my, in fact, my wife, um, who's, who's not white, heard about it. It was w among the people who was quite upset about it, uh, th this company's move. And, I, and then I told her, like, that's interesting because I actually was sort of involved. Like, they asked for my thoughts on it. And uh, something that someone told me when, when I was kind of discussing this and, and discussing even how I was feeling about it, like discussing, like, man, I feel bad. I feel guilty. Um, I feel like that how, how could I have done better uh, seeing now that there's backlash from the community, seeing that there's very much um, concern about how they're moving. How could I have, you know, prepared the, the business for this more? How could I have given them better counsel? 
And someone, someone commented and said, like, you know what you should have done, Nathaniel, is you should have not answered. As a white male, like, perhaps you felt that you have to answer, perhaps that that's what you've been taught by society, that as a white male, you have to have an answer. In this case, however, it may have been the most appropriate thing for you to do to, to say, I don't know, don't ask me, <laughs> like, here's some other people you could ask. Mm. Uh, and I thought that was a huge, it was, it was, that was a huge point of growing for me, like to, to realize uh, just that new freedom. So that's a freedom that I have that I didn't used to have that like, man, I don't have to have the answer. I, uh, I can uh, sort of, I, I don't know if that's giving away my power, but it's, uh, it's certainly just having a recognition of like where, what my strengths and weaknesses are, what, what my gifts are, like what I have to give the world and when it's appropriate for me to some, when it's most appropriate for me to say like, no, 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 don't ask me. Like, I'm not your guy. Right. Well, it's powerful. You know, I was, you know, on top of just being a white male, but just a carbon-based light form in general. <laughs> it's like, it's really nice to not realize, you know, that's what I was sharing with somebody about even just from the faith perspective. Um, mm -hmm. It's great to not have this idea of like, um, this like Christian hegemonic, <laughs> you know, I have the answer, you all, you know, and just yeah. growing up with this perpetual need to have answers for all these big life questions. I have the answer. It's Jesus. Yes. Just say that. <laughs> that was that always happened in in, I, I, in uh, like Sunday school, uh, like where they would say like there would be some question and then ev everyone would just want to say Jesus and like the teacher would be like, no, 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 the answer isn't always Jesus or I don't know. So that, that was like an inside my head joke that didn't fly. That's how it was with my parents. I'd get done with Sunday school. What'd you learn today, Micah? And if I wasn't paying attention that day, I would say, well, you know about Jesus. And one day she was like, Micah, what, what about Jesus? What more? Uh, his relationship with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> oh, okay. That, well, that, that's something. Okay. <laughs> Be more specific. You know, and I know you're, you see yourself, like you're an artist, you're a creative person, you've, you've got um, your podcast, I'd like to talk more about why it ruled, um, but something just talk, go, speaking to the idea of how this work can bring liberation, even for us white males. Yeah. Um, I can't remember, this is going to be the moment where I try to bring up a quote of somebody and botch it up, but the idea, I remember who said it, but um the purpose of art is to make the revolution irresistible Some, mm. something along those lines and i love that i just think that there's something to the idea that hey i'm never going to always make politically correct content or totally woke culture you know things but if i'm doing this self-work like you're talking about then my art in a way will reflect this liberation that yeah. folks will see, oh, and it makes it irresistible, irresistible ideally. It makes them hunger for this idea that, man, I want to be in relationship with these other creatives, these folks of color, you know? And that's why I feel like my biggest disconnect and loss growing up was hmm. wanting to be this writer, be this person who was only reading <laughs> white authors, who was only, you know, the loss yeah. of getting experience what other folks were putting out there in the world as their creative work. Totally. I, lo I love that. Cause it makes me think of, um, 
uh, well, well, I mean, one, it makes me think of like, yeah, there, I, I resonate with the fact that so many things that I didn't read or consume growing up, uh, that I read as an adult and was like, holy crap. Like, I can't believe what I didn't read. Like I just recently read the autobiography of Malcolm X and I can't believe I didn't read it when I was younger. I can't believe what I was told about. It made me quite angry, uh, to, to think about the messages that I was told about Malcolm X versus reading him and understanding him uh, in a more holistic way. Uh, that's baffling, but I can't believe I didn't read it when I was younger. I can't believe I never read Baldwin when I was younger. Baldwin is incredible. Um, some of the best literature, like what has to be one of the greatest American uh, literary figures. I, I didn't read any Baldwin until like four years ago or something. Uh, but what I think the other thing that you said that really resonates and, and speaks to me is, is the fact that whatever you're doing personally is going to be reflected in your art. If you're a real artist, if you're, if you're putting your whole self into your art, whatever you do personally, your whole self has to be in your art. Um, and those things can't be disconnected. If you're trying to do art that is uh, reflective of uh a lens towards racial justice and you're not doing the personal work. Uh, I, I think that's very dangerous. And um, I, I, ultimately it's, it's unhelpful. It's maybe not, un yeah, I think it's unhelpful at some point. I think it's, it's really dangerous. Yeah. There's definitely been cases where I've read of folks who are definitely doing damage with their art, you know, trying, they're basically, re-traumatizing you know black folks by making art that is speaking to slavery or you know speaking to something that's very traumatic and it's you're a white person do you not do not <laughs> tell me why are you telling these people's story through this you know and, well, I think, I, um, and that can happen even when so so that's that's that hits home for me because very recently i've been going through an experience where i've had to reflect on some of my work um that was said to be re-triggering uh, re to people um, and it was a project that wasn't released or hasn't been released to the public. And we've kind of put it on pause because of that. Um, but that's to say that even when, even like I, I, I can very honestly say that I have done work, that I have grown as uh, a, a person becoming less white in a way and, and interrogating my whiteness. And even with, even doing that, I'm still and will always be entirely susceptible to uh, cause harm, um, and, and to, to, uh, reify white supremacist thinking white supremacy culture through my work. Uh, and in this case, what we, what I think what specifically was happening was that I, I really had a lesson in what it means to center whiteness in the racial justice project, um, where, uh, it's it's so related to everything we talked about. So we were creating this game. Um, this game was meant to be a classroom game to to help folks um, helps help high school students understand uh, how personal um, personal self or self interest and public policy meet each other and and uh, created um, our segregated real estate as well as contributed to the racial wealth gap. Um, so in that space of the history of segregation, talking about redlining and blockbusting and gentrification, those, those types of things, but, but trying to do it through a game. Um, and I created it myself and one other white person, we initiated the idea. And then 
brought um, uh, a couple black people onto our team. And we had other people involved, various uh, other people of color involved in the process at various points. But the 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 sort of main ownership of the game has always been myself and one other white person. Uh, we really pushed for in this game. We want uh, if you win the game, we want you to feel that you won based on an unfair set of rules because that's that's an accurate reflection of of reality. That if you bought a home in Prairie Village in the 1940s and held on to that home, you'd have um, a huge amount of wealth accumulation because of uh, uh, the way that we appraise homes, yada, 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 um, redlining, et cetera. What we, we totally designed through a white lens so that when a person of color played the game, uh, eventually someone said, dude, this is triggering. Because if I, if I in the game, since in the game, you, you're given either a, uh, you're basically given a role at the beginning of the game, and that role is going to tell you your income level and your race. Um, and if you are um, signified as black inside the game, you're just, you're, you're just experiencing what you experience in everyday life in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, but even worse, because in the game, there was no hope given. Um, uh, and so realizing that and hearing that and, and sitting with that, I think it really has been a lesson for me in, wow, this is what it means to, to center whiteness, to center my own experience. Uh, and it underscores the importance to earlier in the process, make sure that, um, I'm creating, uh, with a diverse set of creators not holding all the voice myself, um, l- probably listening, listening harder and, and giving up more of that creative process. Uh, I'm totally still processing that one. So if you have any insights from that story, I'm also happy to hear them. I'm just, thanks for sharing that. I just know that I, like you said, I, I try to be a person who is vulnerable myself and then just to bring that vulnerability to the space. Just know I, I, I see that. I recognize it. And just thanks for, because I know what it's like to do write a book or reflect on something that's like wow that was like I didn't realize you know you just you're blindsided by it to again that's the whole point about blindsides right we just don't see it and, yeah and so for me I think what you what you've done through this process sounds like the best approach to bring in those other voices that help speak to areas where you don't see and I think just backing up even from the specific example to just the broader work of white folks and how we just have to know we're going to make mistakes yeah, and have to give each other grace and compassion. And it doesn't mean that there's no accountability or there's no collective community around the mistakes or the things we do. But there, there is some approach of humility we have to bring to the table this and not just for white folks, but you know, for anyone who's trying to do anti-racism work to realize that hey, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to, you know, either, you know, cause ourselves harm or other people harm. And we have caused harm. I think the alternative, though, by saying I don't want to do this work is going to be even more harmful to ourselves, right? Each other, right? So I think that at the end of the day, 
it sometimes can feel like, hey, doing anti-racism work feels like it's making us more racist. And then I ask myself, or is it just it's already there and we've just ignored it? You know, we're just, you know, these dividing lines or this social conditioning. And I think it's totally that. And I think that there has to be a, a huge amount of, uh, I think something that's very compelling and, and uh, maybe the most frightening thing is, uh, so, I mean, with this game, um, you know, there were people that, we, that played it um, as we've tested it and, and, and worked, and there were people that we played it that we may have harmed, but there are also the people on our team that we may have harmed. Mm. Um, and I, I wanted, I want to make sure that as, as a creator creating with other people, how do I, how do I not abuse or, or use the people, the people of color, the black people on, on the team um, for my own personal development? How do I, you know, appropriately, one, like give gratitude to them for like, wow, thank you for, for you being vulnerable to come into this process and create this thing with me because you took a risk working with me and another white guy. And in this case, like, that risk uh, came with some fallout. Um, so I want to like give gratitude and credence to that, to that effort. Um, and also, uh, I, I guess, re repent to use the churchy word, but like show uh, to, to, I'm I, I feel, I'm I feel genuinely, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel genuinely sorrowful, you know, that like, that, um, that the environment that we created uh, wasn't a, f a full manifestation of the world that we want to create, you know, like the, the process is as important as the outcome. Um, yes. Yeah. And, you know, one day when we get to heaven, it'll all be right, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm triggered. Oh, you're triggered. Yeah, right. Well, hopefully when we bring heaven to earth, It'll be, uh, you know, this beautiful, messy, but, you know, produce something beautiful kind of product yeah. in the yeah. midst of everything we're going through. I think our yeah. culture is having a big kind of internal groaning of identity mm. in, the, in the U.S. and the culture as a whole. Yeah. And, yeah, so maybe we can jump into um, some of the projects that are what you're working on now that have been creating space for other folks. You're talking about your podcast, Wide Ruled. Maybe you can share with us kind of what prompted you to start that. Yeah. So, tied to education as well. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so I, so Wide Ruled first started as a part of Brain Root Light and Sound, um, gosh, like four or five years ago. Um, uh, produced episodes for about a year and then went on a hiatus I, I was spending like 25 hours per episode uh, in in like the, the worst case because it was uh very much trying to be in the style of like this american life where it's investigative reporting and that became really unsustainable uh recently i was really surprised by how people were continuing to listen to the old episodes how i was getting fairly frequent comments of someone saying yeah i listened to your podcast the other day and i was like what that podcast episode is like three years old. Um, so that like positive encouragement made me decide like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give this, give this a go. Like um, hit up 
season two after a three-year hiatus. Um, <laughs> so Wide Rule is a podcast about education and justice, uh, whereas before it was investigative reporting, now it is um, more like what you and I are doing. We're having a conversation. We do try to keep it really topical um, uh, and, yeah, focus on education and justice. So like uh, recently, I, I referenced a conversation with Dr. Karma from the Black Archives where we talk about the hashtag teach truth response to the anti-CRT movement in schools. Um, you know, there's in Kansas City, there's been so many publicized uh, episodes of, of teachers using racial slurs or students doing wild things. Um, like, like recently, there was a group of, uh, there was a petition started at Park Hill South where students were apparently petitioning for the return of slavery. Um, so trying to address things like, like, like those and, and have conversations about um, where, where do we go from here? Um, and I'm trying to, to, as you said, elevate the voice of people of color on that platform. Wow. Did not know that students were that. I, I'm just not surprised uh, <laughs> that yeah. folks, our youth are going that direction. I'm going to be one of those old crotchety people one day that just, I mean, I know it's like generate everyone when they get older, like, ah, oh, those dang youth. But uh, I swear to God, like the friends who are teachers, they talk about every year how every year kindergartners are just more and more maliciously evil. <laughs> oh, yikes. But maybe that's their own experience. I don't know. I feel like if that's how they experience it every year, then maybe that's a reflection more on them and how they're, te I don't know. But oh no, maybe <laughs> that's why. I digress. Um, you know, but I was part of the um, Kaufman Education Fellowship um, mm -hmm. earlier this year. And their kind of goal with that project was is to um, kind of bring cross sector folks from different walks of life people who are entrepreneurs, people who mm -hmm. are in education, but basically trying to address like education and justice, like racial disparities in education through community, like through bringing in folks who are part of like, yeah, different walks of life to basically organize and, and be advocates for equity in education. Mm -hmm. I have a full-time job outside, so I never got to like go full-fledged. There's like a second year to it. I just, I decided mm. to turn down just that my life was just, again, one of the things I had to step back and realize as a white person, I can't save the world and be a part of mm. everything. <laughs> and I can yeah. only say yes to so many things and it's okay. You know that. Yeah. I, mm. I have to think about my own self-care and it's home. Kind of one of my own personal learning journeys, but it was really, yeah, powerful experience going through that first year of the fellowship anyways, to learn about the history of this area that I've lived in my whole life and understand, yeah, the, the segregation and, and how it impacted schools, how we try to create magnet schools to bring white folks back and basically weren't actually like t putting the students first in these schools. We were just like, hey, let's build a huge pool, Olympic sized pool and let's just, build these things to try and draw white folks back and it had central academy right and so and that's kind of what your project um the dividing lines project kind of speaks to as well um is that kind of still going or what can, what can yeah yeah so uh, back in 2018 
uh, got to work with the Johnson Race Project KC in the Johnson County Library to to really take a tour that they had been doing for a couple of years um, on buses with a teacher and a bullhorn talking to students, driving around Kansas City, talking about the history of, of segregation and some of the landmarks. We got the opportunity back in 2018 to try to create a digital experience um, uh, uh, that, that could further give access to that same information in that tour. Um, and as a, a storyteller, as a documentary producer, really wanted to to take it and, and weave it into a story as opposed to before that it was kind of a list of facts. So the Dividing Lines tour is a is really a, a cinematic experience. Um, it's a 25 mile tour of the history of segregation in Kansas City starts at Shawnee Mission East High School in Prairie Village, ends in the Ivanhoe neighborhood um, uh, at the Ivanhoe uh, Community Center. And uh, I'm so happy to say that over 8,000 people have have taken the tour um, uh, in uh, 20 uh, earlier this year in early 2021. We completed a uh, virtual reality edition of the tour that you can. Uh, so originally you would um, and you can still do this. You can download um, the voice map app and experience it in your car driving through the city. It's like a combination of Google Maps and a podcast. Mm. Um now you can experience it from the comfort of your own couch through YouTube or through a VR headset. Um, right now, you can find that tour on the Johnson County Library's YouTube page, um, Dividing Lines Tour Part 1, 2, and 3. Um, and I think that what, you know, so the, the point of the tour is to, is to give meaning to our built environment so that we can understand that... Uh, our spaces are, are segregated with intent um, on purpose, um, that, it, that it isn't a matter of uh, what I learned growing up, which was just that like, oh yeah, all the black people live together because you know birds of a feather flock together. Um, but it's actually, it was something, yeah, it was, it was built on purpose. It was white people who compel, white people have always had the option to live wherever the heck they want, but people of color in this country have not. And specifically, black people have very much not, um, and that's, uh, as I said earlier, contributed to the racial wealth gap um, and a host of other uh, life outcomes and ills, um, access to resource and opportunity, etc. Um, but I think something we really wanted to focus on in the tour, beyond just that history, was also that the way that history played out was by people doing business as usual or best practices following just good business. Um, so we feature the story of, uh, of Sid Willens, who, who died a, a civil rights activist, a civil rights lawyer in his obituary. Um, he actually died right after the tour was completed, but, but he tells a story about how he sort of accidentally um, fell into funding, bankrolling, uh, blockbusting activities. Uh, and that when he realized that he had made that mistake, uh, he he actually went to Washington uh, to to lobby the government to say we've got to stop the Section 235 program, which is which has these deleterious effects on the city, um, and is uh, taking advantage of of black people as they as they move out of uh, the ghettos where they've been forced to live. 
and, and the moral of that story is is twofold. One, like it gets back to this thing about uh, people recognizing their mistakes and, and changing. Like we all have that opportunity to recognize their mistakes and change and improve. Um, uh, but also, it I think it's a, it should be a lesson for all of us that if we don't take the time to carefully consider our actions, carefully consider what we consider to be best practices, um, especially in in specifically in this country, when we have 400 years of racist policy, we will perpetuate inequitable systems if we don't take a hard look and, and question best practices. Um, there's no need for current policies to mention race in order to have racially disparate and inequitable outcomes. And that's something that we try to really focus on in the dividing line, Stuart. That's one, yeah. I, I think what's scary about what you're talking about is not only can we perpetuate these things just by doing what today just normal business, but now the movement also towards let's let's actually subvert, you know, critical race theory. <laughs> let's actually try to yeah. Let's try to erase the past and and let's not talk about it. Or even like what they're doing now with technology. They're talking about AI systems that are now racist because the people, the coders, are fucking oh, embedding like data that is being like perpetuating stereotypes. And so now we have AI systems that are absolutely. Like, oh, you're gonna be you're this is your gonna outcome gonna be this oh black person because this is what <laughs> the white data. I don't know. They're just things like that's that. a huge thing. I just just yesterday finished reading a book by Sophia Emoja Noble. Um, called Algorithms of Oppression, which is about uh, Google search and the, the Google search algorithms and how it's procuring information in, a, in, a, in a, a racist way that Google has repeatedly um, pointed to their algorithm and said, oh, no, their algorithm itself isn't racist. It's just the way that it works. Um, but her point repeatedly in the book is that, like, that's not an answer. Like, saying that technology which was built by humans is just the way it works uh is it, it's it's really irresponsible and um it's it's furthering inequity yeah yeah to our listeners if you want to do a little little test project go to google just type in beautiful woman or beautiful man and see what what imagery it brings up mm. you know well, Nathaniel, I promised I would keep things within this time constraint because I know you got other things you got to be doing. Where can we find you online? Where 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 does thou live? On the um, I dose to live in multiple places. I I think of myself as being extremely accessible online. Maybe too much. I don't know. It hasn't been too much so far. You can find me on Instagram at b o underscore Nathaniel Bo underscore Nathaniel. My last name is Bozarth, so it's the first two last names of my. Thing. I also go by Bo sometimes. No one calls me that. Um, they oh, used to. Bo, Dang. yeah, Bo, the yeah. cool kid who has has the in, inside scoop on on your. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm on TikTok as well. Same thing. Bo underscore Nathaniel. You can find my podcast Wide Ruled um, uh, on uh, most likely whatever podcast platform you're currently listening on. You can find Wide Ruled. Uh, Wide Ruled comes out once every two weeks. Um, ish sometimes there's bonus episodes here and there um yeah look me up yeah appreciate you bo 
Boo, I'm going to call you Boobo. My, my, it's my Boobo. And y'all know you can nice. find me, um, well, my personal accounts at, at MJ Crispin um, on all your social medias. And also pray for Micah Pod for Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and even TikTok. I feel like a total millennial boomer or whatever. I made the outro for this podcast. That's That'll play here soon for the listeners. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I say it just like that. And I was going to like edit it out, you know, so I'm not saying and even TikTok. <laughs> and even TikTok. <laughs> but I feel like I just, it goes back to the, it speaks to the, the, the underscore of this show, which is pray for Micah. He's, he's out here trying to try to relate to the youngsters, you know? I, oh, I feel that too. I, I feel like it's even TikTok. Uh, I, I, I felt like there was a big learning. Like I, I felt super old. Like I'm like, I, I'm 30. I'm not that old, but uh, TikTok felt like a big reach. And I feel like I've I don't know. I've started to get it. It's. I feel like I'm decent at TikTok. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not there yet at all. Nope. I'm just gonna be. Oh, I'm gonna follow you on TikTok. We gotta yeah. follow each other on TikTok. Yeah. Follow me. My. I need. My I need peers on TikTok because I, I don't have many peers on TikTok. There's just, you know, other. Yeah. I don't know. Funny folks, you follow. Yeah, I'm at MJ Chrisman is what my I, that's the main one I've posted. I haven't posted anything for the Pray for Micah pod on TikTok yet. Well, but, folks, pray for Micah and I on TikTok and uh, pray tell if there's things we can do to be better on TikTok because I'm just trying to figure it out. Hey, appreciate you again for being here and we'll see you next time, everybody. Awesome. Thanks, Micah. Yeah. Thanks for joining me for the Pray for Micah podcast. Be sure to like and subscribe on this channel and follow me on social media. Pray for Micah Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and yes, even TikTok. We'll see you next time. You are now re-entering the normal world.